Hey, if you didn't bring a Bible, our servant team will get you a Bible. Just raise your hand. They're going to get one. If you have your Bible, you're going to want to make your way to the book of Nehemiah. We are going to highlight the first three chapters as it's going along with our Anchored in the Word series. And the title of our message is, The Man Who Moved Mountains. You see, we are in a time that there is an ominous mountain in front of us about the destruction of our nation. And this is what Nehemiah was facing. And yet, through faith that God had put into his heart, and through his faithfulness, he was going to move the mountains of rubble, the mountains of stone and timber that had been broken down in Jerusalem, the broken down walls. And it's such an apropos picture for each of us, not only to rebuild a personal life or a family, But sometimes our life is in ruins because the enemy has come in like a flood and kicked our tail. It has, the enemy has come in and got us into sin or temptation or some destructive pattern that has basically burned our own lives down around our ears and we might be sitting in a pile of ashes. That was the picture of Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the walls of Jerusalem. Years have went by. And now a guy, here's this story, and he actually wants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He wants to hang those gates so that God's people once again will have the protection and the refuge of those walls and those gates. It's a picture of keeping things out that are bad and evil and keeping safe what is dear and near to our hearts on the inside. It's a picture of the individual life of the family that is a picture of self-control that is able to say no to the wrong things and yes to the right things. And you and I are in that place every day of our life, a couple of decisions away from bringing our own walls down, breaking down our own self-control. So let's stand together and let's read these first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 1 as we look at our message, The Man Who Moved Mountains. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Father, we ask that your word would now speak to our hearts, speak to our lives, and that you would strengthen us as we delve in to grow in our understanding of your plan for us and your people in our community. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. I want to highlight six thoughts in these three chapters, as it is part of, I said, our Anchored in the Word series. And that is, first of all, if you're going to move mountains, we see that, number one, he is the man that cared. 
if somebody's life's a mess and there's no motivation because you care, or you see a situation that's really bad, or you see a community is that's coming apart at the seams, if you don't care about that, if you're not concerned, if you're not motivated with a godly desire to intervene, to somehow throw your weight and energy by faith into that effort, you're never going to move a mountain, right? The reality is, There is a motivation that comes from God working by faith in us when we see things that are absolutely heartbreaking, absolutely wrong. We want to stand up against the wrongdoers. We want to help those who are victims in distress. And you see, the first thing that we see about Nehemiah is that he is the man who cared. For he asked this question about those who are uh, 900 miles away. In Jerusalem, he's never been there his entire life. He's Jewish, but because there's people that travel back and forth, he talks to Hananiah and he says, hey, what's it like in Jerusalem, our former capital? You see, it has been now 94 years, almost an entire century from the time that Zerubbabel and the high priest, uh, Zerubbabel the governor and uh, Joshua the high priest went back to start rebuilding the temple. Almost a century has went by. Now the temple has been rebuilt. They are worshiping there, but their defenses are broken down. As I shared with you last week, the picture of the nation of Israel, if Israel, the nation, is the body, and Jerusalem is the soul, then the temple is the heart. The heartbeat that is spiritual in nature. And so when you want to put your life back together, first of all, you have to have your heart resurrected and you have to have a strong pulse, if you will, in spiritual things. And so after that, though, after your heart comes to the Lord in that uh, awakening, then you need to rebuild the walls of your life. Did that happen to you in your walk with God? Your life was a total mess. You couldn't fix it no matter how you tried. Then you fell on your knees, cried out to Jesus, and you put your faith in him, and he cleansed you, he forgave you, he empowered you, and then once he put you on your feet, he said, now let's start cleaning up this mess you've made in your relationships. You've burned all these bridges, you've hurt all these people, you've got all this addiction, you've got all this debt, you need to pay it back. Your life's a train wreck. And so it starts with the heart, but then it's not enough for God to get a hold of your heart. He wants to get a hold of your life in such a way that he rebuilds it. That's true of a nation, and it's true of an individual, but this is the way they responded when he asked that question. In verse 3, it says, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. Maybe you're here tonight. You've given your heart to Jesus. You're walking with the Lord. You raised your hand. You didn't have a Bible, but now you have one in your lap. But still, you came from a place of great distress when you came here tonight. Emotional distress, addiction distress, fear from what's going on in the world these days. And you've come to this place, and you realize that the the walls of protection in your life, you've slowly allowed them to deteriorate Even as the children of Israel did, it says the wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now, the man who cared when he heard this tragic news, you know, as a father and a grandfather, when I think about my kids, I want my kids to do well. 
I want my grandkids to do well. And if I hear they're in distress or having a hard time, it deeply concerns me. It burdens my heart. I pray for them. And if there's a way to help, I seek to help. But for an individual, have you ever been frustrated that a person doesn't come to the end of themselves? Have you ever loved somebody and you keep thinking they're going to hit bottom and you go, oh, they hit bottom. I think they're going to straighten up their life. Well, their bottom is not your bottom, meaning they just keep going on and on and on and on. You're like, how long can this happen? You see, this illustration comes together in this proverb in Proverbs 25, 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit, self-control, he is like a city broken down without walls. No defenses. There's a time you used to be able to say no to the wrong things, but now you're not able to. You say yes to the wrong things. There used to be a time that you would say yes to the right things and do the right things, but no longer. Now you say no to the right things because you're saying yes to the wrong things. And our life is like the picture of Jerusalem with the walls all broken down. You see, the fruit of the Spirit as we start growing in the Word and God's Spirit starts strengthening us, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control, as Galatians chapter 5 tells us. Paul the Apostle explained in his life, he uses the illustration as an athlete. And here we are on the uh, threshold uh, of the Winter Olympics over in China. And Sean White, the 35-year-old snowboarder, has announced this is going to be his last Olympics. And uh, he's been going for many years. But they said as he was going there, he's got back problems, knee problems, and ankle problems. (laughs) At 35, you know, flying and doing all these uh, 540s and 360s and beating up his body as an athlete. And yet Paul the Apostle tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate or self-controlled in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown or a medal, but we for an imperishable crown. Have you ever wondered, every year that the Olympics come around, I think about how many years those people have trained and worked. They, it affects their diet. It affects their sleep. It, I mean, it, it, it rules their life. And through self-control, they eat the right things, they exercise, and they practice, 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 because they want to win, just think about it, just a little piece of metal. But how much more, Paul the Apostle says, as a Christian, should we be able to exercise towards the right things and resisting the wrong things in our life, because our crown, our little piece of metal, is an eternal crown in heaven. So the motivation should be superior. So let me just ask you, do you care? Do you care about the mess of your life or do you see now as we look at, that's why we're starting Free Ventura because we're looking at our cities in America coming apart at the seams with crime waves and various things and we realize we have to strengthen our community if we don't want it to come here, right? We we are concerned and we are motivated just as the person needs to be motivated that is going to break the cycle of addiction. Do you know what the national average of a person going through rehab is before they get clean? How many times does a person go through rehab before they get clean in America? Five times. Five times. The first time they went because their parents sent them. They didn't want to change what mom and dad sent them. Second time they went because their spouse sent them. You know, get clean or get sober or never come home. Third time, (laughs) their boss said, unless you get this straightened out, go to rehab, you're going to lose your job. The fourth and fifth time, 
there are these guys that have cars with little blue lights, right? And they chase you down and they say, you are going to jail and probably going to rehab. So by the fifth time, on average, they finally, for the fifth time, they finally say, you know what, I'm going to rehab because I want to get straight. I want to get clean. It's not for my parents. It's not for my spouse. It's not for my boss. It's not because I now have three DUIs. It's because I actually want to get sober because my life is just a mess. It's a pile of ashes. And don't get me wrong. I mean, I know very well, and I have seen the colorful array of lights behind my vehicle many times in my life. I have worn the cool little orange jumpsuit in jail. I have felt the squeeze of handcuffs on my wrist and thrown into the back seat of a police squad car. And uh, (laughs) I've woke up in jail in the morning with other prisoners stealing my breakfast. But anywhere along there, nobody could have gotten me to change till I was ready and God did a work in me. Doesn't matter what pressure other people put on you. And it might be a part of the process. He's also the man who prayed. And we're not going to spend a long time here because it's so self-explanatory. It's so powerful because you see, I can care, but I now, by faith, now have to talk to God about what I'm so troubled about. It says in verse 5, I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, or the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that I commanded your servant, the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me, and this is a key, he's praying, he's repenting on behalf of him and the nation. But in prayer, he reminds the Lord of a promise that if we'll repent after you've scattered us from our homeland and we turn to you, you'll bring us home. It says, and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Verse 10, now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to my, the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. His prayer ends... In a promise that God had promised if they would turn, he would bring them back and heal their land. Now, that's our reality. When we turn to the Lord, I promise you, if you turn to the Lord, he will restore, he will heal, he will rebuild your life. If by faith and prayer and a deep motivation that comes from a genuine care and concern is going on inside of you. And so, As this happens, he says, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer was a very important person because the butler who brought the food 
the baker who took care of the food, and the cupbearer, they worked together, but the cupbearer would test all, all liquids that the king drank so that if he was going to be poisoned, he would be the one that died. So it was a pretty, uh, you know, how, how would you like that to be your daily description? I'm going to go drink stuff every day of my life, and if I die first, well, then I, I accomplish my task. But he is a servant, and he's pretty overwhelmed because, you see, he not only cares, but now he's prayed, but he's going to have to get, get, have the boldness when God gives him the favor before the king to ask for what he wants to ask for. I'm lousy at asking for things. How about you? I hate to ask anybody for anything. Now, if people ask me, I want to help. I, you know, it's, it's very easy to give and very hard to receive. And my wife, so many times through the years in ministry, she's like, why don't you ask some people? You would have 20 people just to show up and help you. I'm like, I don't want to ask. <laughs> but by faith, he's going to have to ask a person of authority because you see there's no way for him to move a mountain unless God moves first the king's heart. Look at this. The man who asked in chapter 2. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Pause for a moment. You do not come with a sad countenance before the king, because the king wants to be made happy. That's why they have court jesters, right? Keep the king happy so he's smiling. And back in the day, it could be a death sentence just to come in with a sad countenance. Now, he's never been, never been sad before him in his presence. In verse 2, therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid. Now he's freaked out because the king's like, hey, how come you're sad in my presence? The king said, may the, uh, and he said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? This is why I'm sad. My hometown, if you will, of my forefathers, my ancestors, 900 miles away, Jerusalem, is all broken down. It's, it's all a mess. And so, sir, you ask, this is why. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> this is one of those immediate quick prayers I prayed. It's not like he stopped and said, you know, you ask a question, king, I'm going to go out here for 30 minutes and I'm going to come back. It's the, uh, what I call the, the arrow prayer. Like in that moment that something sudden happens and just in your mind, the boss calls you on the pro uh, carpet and before you answer in your mind, you go, oh, Jesus, help me. <laughs> right? It's like one of those just boom, shoot, shoot an arrow prayer up. When I'm driving down the road in Idaho and I would lose control of the vehicle on the ice, and it's like, Jesus, save me. <laughs> it's like one of those prayers that just, boom, it just pops out of you. But this was a silent prayer that he prayed to the God of heaven in verse 5. I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when you, will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. 
Now, it wasn't enough just for him to ask to be able to go to his hometown and rebuild the city. Now, he's asking the king at this time, the most powerful man. We see in other passages that there are over 127 provinces. I mean, all of the Mediterranean area, that known world, is under this king's power and authority. But he not only had to ask to go, but so what if he asked to leave if he can't have basically his passport to get all the way there? And then when he gets there, what if he doesn't have building materials? So he asked for the access, like a passport, a letter, and then he asked for all the supplies. I mean, it's a, he's super bold. Now, his faith that is going to move mountains, he, was, he cares, he's concerned, he prays, but he's also waited for four months. Chapter one starts in the month of Chislev, and four months later in Nisan, the month of Nisan, that's not a car. That's a month, spelled the same way. Um, but four months later, so he's been waiting in prayer. And sometimes when we're praying, if you've been praying for something for four months or maybe even longer, sometimes you think that delay is denial. Not so. Delay is not denial. Sometimes it's just not the right time. So for four months, faith is working in him. He's praying. He's waiting. He now boldly asks. The king says, okay, give me a time you're going to go. Give me a time you're going to come back. But he has to ask for the access, passport, letter, and he also has to ask for the supplies. Verse 7, furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through a passport. Till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according, notice, why was the king so generous? According to the good hand of my God upon me. He had been praying for four months, and God touched the king's heart with such favor that he's going to allow him to go. He's going to give him a passport letter to get there, and when he gets there, he's going to get all the supplies he needs with timber and various things, building supplies. It's basically, he gives him a Home Depot card and says, knock yourself out, right? Just go for it. Verse 9, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. So he also had a, uh, a bodyguard contingency that went to keep him safe. But in, check this out in verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. These are going to be his arch enemies during this time. And another guy that's going to be thrown into the mix, a guy by the name of Geshem, uh, the Arab. So these guys are deeply disturbed. Notice there's everything is in his favor, and then as he arrives, the opposition rises up. We saw that in Ezra. You'll see it all the way through the scripture. You saw it when Moses went before Pharaoh, and he said, let my people go. Then these magicians rose up. Pharaoh hardened his heart, and there was opposition, and there had to be 10 plagues to finally break the heart of Pharaoh to kick them out of the nation of Israel. You're going to have opposition if you're going to rebuild your life. As a matter of fact, it's one of those things. Let me just be very practical. 
I have done ministry in jails and with drug addicts and alcoholics and people that have just destroyed their lives. And you get somebody that's a meth addict and now they're, they're, they're clean, they're sober six months and they're trying to rebuild their life with their family, but they have burned every bridge for 20 years, stealing from them, harming them, you know, costing them uh, lawyer fees. And, and the family just, you know, somewhere along the line, dusted off their hands of you and just said, no more. And this person gets, comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm so angry with my family because they're just not trusting me. I, I'm clean, you know. I'm like, how long you been clean? Six months. How long did you destroy the family? 20 years. I said, do you think you might give them a little grace to let uh, some time pass by? Now, it's probably not going to take 20 years, but it's definitely going to take a few to convince them that you're no longer the bum you were. Right? And people that get clean all of a sudden forget all of the heartache that they've caused. And they think everybody just, boom, just forget about it overnight. And that's not the way life works. Trust has to be rebuilt. And they may give you the benefit of the doubt, but you have to rebuild that. And when you do start to rebuild that, there are going to be those naysayers that try to oppose you in your new adventure of rebuilding your life. There will be those old friends that are calling you up and trying to get you down the street to the meth addict party, right? There's going to be those who say, oh, I don't believe it. There's going to be naysayers. There's going to be people do not think when you go to rebuild your life, it's going to be an easy task. Because if you think it's going to be easy, as soon as you hit hard things and difficult things, you get discouraged and just give up. It's really, really, really easy to destroy your life because with no self-control, I just say yes to all of the wrong things. Is that hard to do? No. I can ruin my life in a matter of weeks. But it is a hard thing to do the right thing and step by step, brick by brick, rebuild my life. It's crazy, isn't it, that you could take 30 years to build a godly character and reputation and it can be gone in a month. 30 years of doing the right things. And you just go through a little season of stupidity. And we all are capable of great moments of stupidity. And I'm the first in the line of possible people (laughs) that will ruin my life. You see, because sin and temptation is no respecter of persons. It doesn't care who you are. It will devour you. But he's also the man that investigates because he, he, he doesn't have this pie-in-the-sky picture that it's, it's going to be all roses and rainbows. In verse 11, we see the man who investigated. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, and I, I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. It was so, there was so much rubble, he had to get off his animal. 
So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Now he came to town. Three days he rested, long journey, 900 miles. He rests for three days. And then in the night, with a couple of his assistants, they go exploring the walls and the gates at night so that nobody was observing what was in his heart. He wanted to see how extensive the damage was. He wanted to see how much work he had to do. You see, you have to count the cost. You have to face the difficulties. Some people that you, uh, certain, there's a certain segment of Christianity that uh, word of faith and, and positive confession, and if you see tough things, the worst thing in the world you can do is talk about how tough they are because that's a negative confession, brother. No, that's a realistic confession doesn't mean that I lack faith because I see the reality. I don't have to deceive myself that this is not difficult. <laughs> when, when I get sick, it's not a negative confession to say I'm sick. When I'm sick, I say, Lord, heal me. I recognize that I'm sick. I like to live in reality. How about you? I don't like to live in delusional land. <laughs> I have a friend that his mom was so strong in the word of faith that she got sick, she got a, a, a chronic disease, easy to diagnose, and uh, because, you know, if you're in the word of faith, the only reason that there's, you're sick is there's either sin in your life or you don't have enough faith, faith to be healed, right? It's, it's one of the two. And which is the last thing that a person already struggling with sickness needs is condemnation, <laughs> right? There's sin in my life or I don't have enough faith. But his, his mom was always pounding this away for him, and when he came home to visit, one of his siblings said, hey, they diagnosed mom with this, and they put her on this prescription, this medication. She needs this medication for this chronic condition. So he went and saw his mom, and he thought this will be an interesting conversation because she believes nobody will, you know, it's never God's will that anybody be sick. And so he said, mom, I heard you're sick, and you're taking medication. He wanted to know what she'd say. She said, well, they're giving me medication for people that have this sickness, but I don't. And he tried to talk around that, and she was unwilling just to face the reality, I'm sick, I need this medication, I need God's help, I need his healing. Paul the Apostle said, I glory, this is the secret of his power, he said, I glory in infirmity, I glory in weakness, I glory in sickness, that God, I'm weak, Lord, I'm sick, please fill me with your power, and in my weakness, God's grace and strength is made perfect, and he infuses me with strength through my weakness. And this reality that he goes in the night and he sees how overwhelming the piles of rocks are and all the gates burned with fire. And this is an undertaking that no doubt by the end of it, it took his breath away and he's like, ay, 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 I did not know how bad this was. I didn't know. But he wanted to check it out before he told anybody because it's one thing to come and say, oh, you know, I'm coming to rebuild the walls. But I haven't even looked at the walls to see how bad it is. There's a reason that 94 years later, the temple has been rebuilt, but the walls have not been rebuilt. Why? Because nobody had the faith and the wisdom to move the mountains of rubble and put Humpty Dumpty back together again of Jerusalem. But he's also the man who inspired. Though he sees an overwhelming vision, by faith he believes that God can do this, and so now he inspires the leaders in verse 17 of chapter 2. 
Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let's rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. How come nobody had said that in 94 years? How come no one had done that in a century? Said, let's rise up and build. But he said, hey, I want you guys to know God's hand is on me. God gave us, the Jewish people, favor through the king. Let's rise up and build. You guys, we can do this. It is so often that things lie in a wasteland of destruction because there is no one to inspire in leadership to gather people together in unity as a team and to move forward with the work of construction. And that's what Nehemiah is able to do. As a matter of fact, it'll make your head spin. They couldn't do it in 94 years, and yet he comes to town and they're going to rebuild this entire wall of this city in 52 days, a month and a half. Blow your mind. Because when faith is moved and is inspired to others, and they are also now filled with faith, I love what it says there once again in verse 18. Let us rise up and build, and then they set their hands to do this good work. We're living in a period of time where the rubble of the progressive left feels like it is steamrolling us. It feels like a tsunami from the presidential administration to the governor here in the state of California to local officials that are tyrannical. I was so saddened this week as I heard in places that are using some logic, looking at the science, Great Britain is dropping all mass mandates and dropping all um, vaccine mandates And Oregon just doubled down and said, the mask for children is now permanent. It's now permanent. Can you imagine raising an entire generation of children in a mask to control them by tyrannical leaders? It is child abuse. And they are going to suffer the consequences of an entire generation that suffers through this inhumane treatment. But sometimes these things, these edicts are coming down and they're just, and you just get overwhelmed. You're like, man, no, there's nothing we can do. Yeah, there is something we can do. We can rise up and build a community of freedom. But it's going to be people that care. It's going to be people that pray. It's going to be people that want to engage and not just passively sit by because you'd see this reality that everybody else is waiting for somebody else to step up and to save us. Where that person, you know where that person is? You'll find them every morning in the mirror. It's you. It's me. Whatever role God calls us into to be a part of what is going on by his kingdom. Now, as soon as we do this, once again, you have opposition, these guys that are troubled by that. You know, for the first time, these, these school boards are getting pushback for them uh, teaching our five-year-olds, you know, pornographic, sexual, gender garbage in our schools. And for the first time, people are showing up at the school board meetings and saying, we don't like this. 
And they don't even, they're befuddled because the progressive left, we've just handed over our children to indoctrination centers. And they're like, hey, you know, you parents don't have any say in your children's lives. Now, how'd they get to that place? By us being quiet for three decades. Whose fault's that? It's ours. It's not their fault. I mean, in a sense it is, but we have a responsibility. So now they're troubled, just like Sambalat and Tobiah here. It says in verse 19, But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. They're talking trash. They're laughing at them. They're mocking them. Just like the, the mainstream media and these, these oligarchy of elites that look at common sense Americans that don't want their children indoctrinated and don't want this progressive socialism and communism. And they look at us like we're some kind of knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. They're, we're the deplorables. We're the people that Katie Kirk says, you know, how can we get these people into counseling and, and help them with their, their conservative ideals? They actually think that we need, I think they need a mental hospital, but they think we need a mental hospital. AOC goes on record yesterday that capitalism as we know it is dead in a bad system because she's a total communist. It's, it's unbelievable that in America, people are putting up with this stuff and she's up for election and they're gonna put her back in office. That's even more startling to me. Can you imagine electing somebody like that from your district? There, you know, as I, I said before, there used to be this token socialist in Congress that everybody kind of snickered about and Bernie Sanders and now there's a whole mob of them from President Biden's administration to Pelosi, Schumer, Schiff, AOC, the squad, all of these people that are socialist, communist, and anti-Semitic for the Talib, these, these Muslims that are tearing things down. And, and publicly, it would have never been tolerated. You know, Roseanne Barr says an off-color thing and gets fired, and Whoopi Goldberg can say that the Holocaust was not about race. And she gets two weeks suspension. It's like this incredible, crazy double standard. And when you look at the big cities, they're all controlled by blue cities that are controlled by leftist individuals. They're all destroyed cities. They're burned out cities. You go to Detroit, whole neighborhoods just have just, it's like going back to Jerusalem with the walls crumbling. The police are not wanted. No law and order, just destruction. So, sixth and finally, we see the man who worked. Because it's one thing to pray, it's one thing to cry, it's one thing to share a vision, but you have to execute that vision. And I love this because chapter three is just one long list of names about people and what they built. Okay, so we're not going to read them all, and I'm not going to embarrass myself by so many huh, mispronunciations. But, but notice here in chapter 3, as we highlight a few things, verse 1, 
Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priests, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. So here the, the priests, uh, the high priest and all these priests, they, they get together and they start working. And the thing you're going to see in this list, there's priests, there's goldsmith, goldsmiths, there's uh, perfumers, they make perfume. There's the eclectic nature of any group of people coming together to rebuild walls. I mean, it's not like, hey, did you go to wall builder school? No, I didn't go to wall builder school. Did you, are, you ever worked in construction? No, I make perfume. <laughs> I'm a goldsmith. I make little jewelry. I mean, they're not, I mean, these are dainty hands that are not used to having any calluses on them. Yet they come together for the cause. And the reality is, is that we see this, this rebuilding. Look at verse 2. Next to Elishib, the men of Jericho, and next to them, Sakur built. And verse 4, next to them made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. Notice who didn't do anything. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord, their Lord. The nobles, the rhinos of their day, right? The people that have the elite position, they're the nobles. They're making millions of dollars and do nothing. Do you think that America is going to be changed by a bunch of rhinos in Washington, D.C., or even by somebody coming in to save the country on Air Force One. No, it's going to come from common people like you and me getting involved in their cities and their counties and making a difference. And doing that all the way across the country. It's not a top-down situation. It's a bottom-up transformation that has to happen in America during this period of time. Because everything that we see the children of Israel going through as they, their nation was destroyed and now they're seeking to rebuild it. We're watching with our own eyes as the fires burn for a couple of years in Portland. And everything that is taking place throughout our country because people have rejected God. They've turned away from God and law and order. But the thing that you see, there's some key words here that are so important. They made repairs. The word repairs is used 18 times in this chapter. They repaired in the past tense is used 22 times in this chapter. They built six times. So 46 times the words of repair, repaired, and built are used. They're building, they're constructing, they're working. Nehemiah's leadership inspires organizes and works. That's all there is to leadership. Have a clear vision, inspire that vision, get the people together, organize the people, and go to work. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. But he does it. You and I can do it. Anybody can do it that wants to make a difference. And we're watching it across America as groups rise up and they see a need, they declare a vision, and they inspire they organize and they go to work. Also, there is this concept throughout this chapter, the word next. It's used 11 times, and they next to them. So it's this picture of this wall that goes around, and it's, it's, it's not a circle, but it's you know just like the uh, meandering wall that goes around Jerusalem. And it's describing all the way around the wall, these people are building, and next to them, they're 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 building, and next to them. Eleven times the word next is used, and then after, oftentimes it's, and they built here, and then after them, 
is used 13 times, and then when they want to use another word, they say moreover is two times, and so 26 times you see people that are next to other people doing the work. They're working, they finish that, and after them, or moreover, these people got involved, because it's us coming together as in unity to have synergy to move forward as a team, because one person can see a need, but he can't rebuild a wall. If Nehemiah just came to town, he couldn't rebuild that wall. Another century would go by. But he could inspire a whole group of people, and he could organize them. And he also got the supplies from the king, and so that they could move forward. But I love this also, and I think this is where the rubber meets the road, and this is where I see it finally show up on your doorstep. Finally show up on my doorstep. Because there's a series of times that it says now they rebuilt the wall out here because it was in front of their house, in front of their house, in front of their house. Ten times, ten times in this chapter it says they rebuilt the portion of wall that was right out their front door, in front of their house. Because that's what I find. Nobody is motivated till this fight, till it affects your kids, till it affects your job. Till it affects somebody you love, some, it affects your paycheck, and all of a sudden now you're up in arms. You know, the father that showed up at Loudoun County School Board meeting, whose daughter was raped in a bathroom by a transgender boy. He came in in a skirt and raped this man's daughter. The daughter, the school called him, they found out about it. The school just moved him to another school, and he raped another girl in another school. And they claim there's never been a transgender issue, even though in their emails they're all talking about it. They're lying in hypocrisy because they have this weird, twisted sexuality agenda of the progressive left. They really want this minority. You know transgender people are one in 10,000. Talk about the tail wagging the dog. Are we, now, is our whole life going to be governed by one out of 10,000 people in drag? It's unbelievable. It is, if we don't stand up and just say, hey, you know what? Personally, as a citizen in America, whatever you want to do in your own sexuality, they have the freedom to do so, right? We're not the sex police. Now, as Christians, we have a, a morality, but Paul the Apostle said, for Christians, we judge according to Scripture in our walk with God. He says, but as far as the world is, he says, I don't judge the world. He said, if you did that, you'd have to leave the world, <laughs> right? The world, the people that you work with outside of Christianity, it's like, hey, they want to dress and drag. They want to cut their body parts off and try to make new body parts that got, you know, got rid of the old body part. They want to do that. There's more power to them. They want to do that to themselves. God bless them. I'm not stopping them. But when you start to teach my children that, or you cram it down my throat, that's a different thing. Because I've left you alone to do your thing, but don't you cram your garbage down my throat. Because that's the reality that we, people have to stand up. But I, I mean, here is a transgender man crushing all the swimming records on the swim team at Penn State. And all the girls are, are afraid to speak up. Now only after the season are they all starting to speak up. Because they're afraid of being called what? Trans, transphobe. 
No, they're not transphobe. They would just like to compete with other girls so that if they, you know, just think about this guy breaking the records that the other girl on the team that's the strongest swimmer that has dedicated her entire life to swimming has now been ruined because she can't win because she's going against a man. Greater bone density, greater muscular, you know, on and on and on. Unbelievable what people in America, but you see, you know, Unless it affects your daughter and she's on the swim team, we're not saying nothing, right? Because it's not in front of your house. It's not on your doorstep. There is a point that you will respond when they come for you. It's that old joke, you know, the difference between a recession and a depression. You know, a recession is the neighbor lost his job. A depression is I lost my job. It's all the difference. Just one in the next house is all the difference it makes. And here we are in a generation where God's people throughout America from coast to coast should be the most faith-filled, courageous, concerned citizens in the United States of America. Nobody should have more courage than us. Nobody should care more about our community than we do. Nobody should care about the next generation more than we do. But sometimes it just feels like it's a mountain that's against us, right? It's just too big. It's too overwhelming. It's too scary. But you see, as it says in verse 23 and then 28 through 30, after him, Benjamin made repairs opposite his house. So his house is here, the wall's there. He went right out his front door and dealt with the, the breach that was in the wall. The priests made repairs each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Mashulam made repairs in front of his dwelling. As I said some 11 times, house and dwelling is used because it finally gets close enough to make you uncomfortable that you finally speak up. The reality is is that I, I wish we weren't this way, but I think just humanly speaking, most of us don't want to rock the boat. We're easygoing folks. We just want to be left alone and we'll leave you alone. But when the disruption finally comes to our town and BLM and Antifa come to town and they want to burn a hundred of our businesses on Main Street, right? Or they want to smash and grab all the stores in our community. Or they want to, uh, you know, the, the transgender thing, the, uh, all of it is just this crazy, woke insane thing that 30 years ago, 30 years ago, and this is the, this is the thing. I, I told people when they finally passed the law that, you know, making gay marriage the same, I said, they won't stop there. You know what the next frontier will be, you guys? You watch. It's going to be that pedophilia is not wrong. This is the next thing. They're already coming after your kids. They're going to be able to give them shots without your permission, Right? They're coming after your kids, and they're going to say, pedophilia is not wrong. If a 30-year-old man wants to have sex with an 11-year-old girl, there's nothing wrong with that. They already took the biggest step that they could in Sacramento this last year, right, when they had it reduced, the 10-year statutory rape. So 10 years. If there's a 10-year difference, so if you're 26 and 16... There's no statutory rape. 
So if you're, I mean, just, I, I'm not sure where the, the line is where they stop that, but that's the first step. You go, oh, the, this is what we do on the conservative side. Concede to them, all that, they won't stop, just give it to them. No, because they won't stop there. Don't you get it? Don't you get it? They don't stop there. They're, it's not until they can allow an entire generation to become like the land of Canaan that the Lord sent the children of Israel into that was so corrupt. You only have to read Leviticus 18 and 19 and just be horrified by what the culture was like. Because behind all of this, you guys, we know that there is a demonic spiritual force, right? This is satanic because it's so far away from God's heart. But you know, Nehemiah in this story, he moved a mountain. A mountain of rubble in 52 days, they rebuilt the wall. He came filled with faith. He came filled with a heart to inspire the people to come together, rise up, and let us build. Let us build a church. Let us build the kingdom of God. Let us build our community. Let us be salt and light in our community to where people will, will move from the up north from Los Angeles. You know, I'm going to Ventura County because you know those folks up there? You can raise a family, and it's, it's safe, right? It's safe. People will come for miles around to come to a community that they can actually raise families without fearing that their children are going to die in a drive-by at their house any random night of the week. But the citizens of that community make that community so and come together. That's what our desire is with this whole free Ventura is the community organization arm of what our, we're so passionate about, and that is just practical, godly people with good common sense coming into a place that they can be useful in our community. You know, Jesus said that you and I are the salt and the light. Salt illuminates darkness, and we are in a dark time. Salt is a preservative that keeps things from rotting. And our country is rotting. And so the preservative factor of God's people standing up can shine the light in the darkness and bring a preservation, a preserving factor within a community to go forward and have a life that is abundant and blessed and peaceful that we can enjoy for generations to come. Now, this is the first weekend of the month, so we're turning our hearts now to communion. So you have some communion there on your chair. Please grab it. And we're so thankful that Jesus has done this work in our life to give us this heart to be transformed by him and to be useful to be salt and light. Let's take the bread and thank the Lord for his body that was given for us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave us physical elements to partake of, to remember your body that was given for us, that was beaten for us, that it was abused for us, that you took our place, Lord, and suffered for our sins. Jesus, thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for intervening and bringing intercession. And thank you even now, as your word says, that you ever live to intercede for us. Lord, help us bring change. Help us rebuild our lives personally. Help us rebuild our families. Help us rebuild the walls of, of protection to be able to 
allow the good things into our life and to keep out those bad things, Lord. The fruit of the Spirit, would you increase the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, Lord Jesus, as we thank you for your body that was given for us. Let's take the bread together. And as we take the cup, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us, for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, you're so amazing. We give you thanks. We give you praise. We give you glory and honor to make a way for us to have our sins washed as white as snow. You said, though our sins be as crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red as scarlet, Lord, they'll be white as wool. You said, come together, let us reason together, says the Lord. We're coming together to reason with you, Lord Jesus, and, and just to ask for your forgiveness. Lord, would you wash us and cleanse us from our sin? Well, Lord, there's three things that just beat upon our lives, Lord, the, as John describes them, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, Lord. These things, don't, they don't please you. They don't bring honor to you, Lord. But they're of this world. So, Lord, would you wash us and cleanse us and help us? Lord, to walk with you. Thank you for your blood, Jesus, that makes us clean. Let's take the cup together. Let's stand together for this closing song. And I want you to know, if you need prayer, prayer team's gonna be up front. If you need to pour your heart out with someone, have them lay hands on you and anoint you and have uh, healing, whatever it might be, I just encourage you to come forward. They'd love to pray for you and minister to you. May the Lord keep you in his grace, strengthen you. Look forward to uh, some special events with Scott Pressler tomorrow night at 6 p.m. And, and, and Free Ventura, if you wanna be a part uh, a movement in our in our city and our county to make a difference then I invite you to come on Tuesday night at 6:30 let's worship the Lord